This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So what I'd like to do today is talk to you about one of Augustine's main themes in his writings. You could even call it uh, an obsession of his, self-knowledge. And I'll give you a couple examples of this, why I, I call it an obsession. Although I did see a great line, I think it was on your floor, the fourth floor. I saw a sign tacked on somebody's office door. Obsession is the word lazy people give for dedication. <laughs> and that may be true. Um, so a couple examples of Augustine's dedication to self-knowledge. In one of his first dialogues, the Soliloquies, which depicts Augustine and his own reason as sort of separate characters in a conversation, reason asks Augustine what he wants to know. To which Augustine replies, God and the soul. Nothing more, reason persists, nothing whatsoever, Augustine exclaims. These are the twin obsessions of his life, to know God and the soul. Later, when reason asks Augustine to come up with the briefest and most perfect prayer that he can, Augustine prays this, O God, ever the self-same, may I know myself, May I know thee, amen. May I know myself, may I know thee, amen. One can understand Augustine's preoccupation. The injunction to know thyself is at least as old as the Oracle of Delphi, and it essentially became the cornerstone of classical philosophy as evidenced in Socrates' famous aphorism, the unexamined life is not worth living. Despite their differences, the one thing that all the myriad schools of Socratic and post-Socratic philosophy had in common was a desire to acquire or at least approximate self-knowledge. But self-knowledge was not just the main interest of classical philosophy. It was also a priority of the early and medieval church. In the 1970s, a French scholar by the name of Pierre Crucel collected all the references he could find to knowing oneself, starting with Plato and ending with St. Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century. He filled two massive volumes, and even then he could have kept going. In other words, this is a huge thing for both Athens and Jerusalem. And I trust that this quest for self-knowledge is still relevant to us as members of university committee. For it seems to me that one of the differences between training and education is that training helps you master a particular set of practical skills, while education helps you see and understand the world better. And that understanding, one would hope, includes a better understanding of yourself. I am tempted to say that if students spend four years under our tutelage and graduate without gaining any self-knowledge whatsoever, they might be entitled to a full refund. 
But I'm also poignantly aware that it may be just a little bit of the student's fault for not paying attention during those four years. But the goal should be some kind of self-knowledge, don't you think? So let us turn to St. Augustine and see how he can help us with the quest to know oneself. The first thing to notice is that Augustine does not think there is only one kind of self-knowledge. Rather, there are at least three. Intellectual self-knowledge, moral self-knowledge, and religious self-knowledge. Um, as it turns out, these are actually the subjects of books seven, eight, and nine of the Confessions. Book seven, when he reads the books of the Platonists, gives him a certain kind of intellectual self-knowledge. Book eight, when he converts under the, the fig tree, hears the voice, take and read, uh, gives him a moral self-knowledge. Um, and his baptism in the church in book nine is this a moment of religious self-knowledge. And he also refers to these moments of self-knowledge as conversions. Um, which I think he means in the etymological sense of the, of the term. It's a, a turning with. He never makes these turns by himself. It's with God's help. Um, but it's a, it's a turning with to see something, something new. So let's look at each of these three kinds of self-knowledge. The first is intellectual self-knowledge. Which, as I mentioned, Augustine was able to achieve thanks in part to his reading of the Platonists. I don't know if intellectual self-knowledge is the hardest to attain, but it is certainly the hardest to explain. Because it's not just that with intellectual self-knowledge that, oh, now I have fallen in love with reading books. Or I've fallen in love with the life of the mind. Uh, what he means is something far more specific. What he means by intellectual self-knowledge is the ability to properly differentiate sensible from intelligible reality. In other words, to be able to understand that there are actually, in a sense, two grades or modes or levels of reality, uh, the world within space, time, and matter, the world that is conditioned by space and time and matter, and the world that is somehow not conditioned by space, time, or matter, the world of unchanging and eternal realities. And those are things that can, they're, they're called the intelligible realities because they are only things that can be grasped by the intellect. Whereas sensible realities, the world of space, time, and matter, are things that can be grasped by the senses. So what's an example of an intelligible reality? Um, Augustine would say something like numbers is a perfect example of an intelligible reality. So the number three is an intelligible reality, an eternal reality, not a sensible one. Um, you can certainly look at three chairs but you can't look at threeness. Threeness has no look, it has no smell, uh, it has no sound. Like sure you hear me utter the sound three, but you know that's a symbol, right? And I could just as easily have 
used a different language and it would point to the same reality. Uh, but, you know, that sound three is, is arbitrary. It's a symbol. It's not the thing itself. The thing itself, three, existed before the creation of the physical universe and will exist after the physical universe ceases to exist. It is an eternal reality. And the human intellect, and this is kind of amazing, is capable of knowing it. So that means that the human intellect, in a sense, has one leg in the world of space, time, and matter, and another in the world of eternity. We are tapped in to something that transcends the world of, of space, time, and matter. Um, so that's pretty cool, but it's actually not always easy to understand. We are so used to just thinking of all reality as the reality that is only accessible to our uh, senses. Um, so Augustine struggled with this, and he, he struggled it with particularly with the nature of God. He knew that Christianity taught that God was spirit. And he knew that that meant that God was free of the constraints of space, time, and matter. But every time he tried to think of God, he kept thinking of God in some material likeness. So, for example, he knew that God was not a part of the universe, but the creator of the universe, and yet God was somehow present to the universe. Well, how on earth can God be present to the universe? And so he came up with this analogy. Oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. The universe is like this giant sponge, and God is like water that fills the sponge, but isn't the sponge. So he's present to every nook and cranny of the sponge, but he still transcends the sponge. Yeah, that's it. No, it's not, because then he went to think about it. He said, well, that means that there's more of God in an elephant than there is in a sparrow. <laughs> that means there's more of God in, you know, a fat person than a thin person. <laughs> you know, when you, when you put on your freshman 15, do you say, got more God, you know? <laughs> Or have you heard, uh, now in addition to the freshman 15, there's the COVID-19. <laughs> have you heard that one before? So, yeah. So, yeah, you don't get more God, um, you know, just because you've, you've put on weight, right? Or you don't lose God because you've lost weight. Um, I'll, I'll end on a happy note with Lent, right? You, you lose weight, you're supposed to get more God during Lent. So, <laughs> um, so he knew that wasn't right. So how, how does he get out of this? What's the alternative to thinking of God in a material way? For Augustine, the key is first to know something that we all have and are in fact using right now, our minds. For the very minds we are using right now is a prime example of a reality that is intelligible but not sensible. In other words, the mind is not the brain. The brain is a sensible reality, a material organ, while our mind is an intelligible reality, pure spirit. Certainly, our mind makes great use of the brain. And of course, if our brain gets damaged, that will affect the activities of our mind. 
But that still does not mean that the mind is the brain. Neuroscience can trace the activities of the brain when a person is thinking, but it is, it is not clear whether it is tracing correlation or causation. Right? Neuroscience can't answer that question. Does a mental insight happen because certain neurons in the brain fire, or do certain neurons in the brain fire because the mind is having an insight? So this is how Augustine described his predicament. Thus was I so gross of mind, not seeing even myself clearly, that whatever was not extended in space, either diffused or massed together or swollen out or having some such qualities, or at least capable of having them, I thought must be nothing whatsoever. So that's a long sentence, but he's just basically saying, I was so confused that I was convinced if it's not spatial, it's not anything. And this is sort of a, a, a Cartesian temptation, right? If, if it's real, I have to be able to picture it on a Cartesian grid. And if I can't, it can't be real. My mind was in search of such images as the forms my eye was accustomed to see. And I did not realize that the mental act by which I formed these images was not itself a bodily image. The mental act by which I form images is not itself a bodily image, yet it could not have formed them unless it were something and something great. So again, note the problem. Augustine kept thinking that for something to be real, it must be spatial. He did not realize that God is not in space. Space is in God but not spatially. <laughs> I'll just continue. Uh, <laughs> um, and note the solution, the mental act that struggles trying to figure out the difference between sensible and intelligible reality is itself an intelligible reality. It is obviously real for if it, if it wasn't, it wouldn't be struggling. Only things that exist struggle. Here is how Augustine describes his breakthrough when he finally did get his breakthrough. Being admonished by all this to return to myself, I entered into my own depths with you as guide. He's talking to God. And I was able to do it because you were my helper. I entered and with the eye of my soul, such as it was, I saw your unchangeable light shining over that same eye of my soul, over my mind. It was not the light of every day that the eye of flesh can see, nor some greater light of the same order, such as might be if the brightness of our daily light should be shining with a more intense brightness and filling all things with its greatness. Your light was not that, but other, altogether other than all such lights. Nor was it above my mind as oil is above the water it floats on, or as the sky is above the earth. It was above because it made me, and I was below because I was made by it. He who knows the truth knows that light, and he that knows the light knows eternity. That's a strong statement to make. And 
And notice this intellectual self-knowledge. He's not talking about some kind of religious, mystical experience. Every human mind, by nature, is capable of knowing eternity, of tapping in. So, um, by intellectual self-knowledge, then, we do not mean falling in love with the life of the mind or becoming a bibliophile of the best that has been thought and written, even though those things are quite valuable. What we mean is the discovery of one's own mind as an intelligible reality that is participating in the supreme intelligibility that we call God. So that is my summary. I told you it was hard to explain (laughs) of intellectual self-knowledge. I forgot to mention, I'm going to talk about the three different kinds of self-knowledge. I'm also going to talk about the obstacles to these different kinds of self-knowledge. There are two obstacles to an intellectual conversion. The first is our daily habits, which privilege the sensible world. Not that there's anything wrong with the sensible world, but um, as embodied souls that receive data from the senses, um, over time we can basically develop habits of laziness, where we just assume that everything we know is a material reality and and is not our daily life pretty much preoccupied with the world of space, time, and matter. How many of you just spend the entire day contemplating the platonic forms, right? Or are you constantly looking at your watch, you know, figuring out where you need to go next place? We're constantly obsessed with navigating in ourselves in this world. Again, that's okay, but you can see how that can build a bad habit, right? A, a materialist habit where you forget that in some respects, the, the world that is accessible to our senses is actually not reality at its very highest. Okay. Uh, so that's problem number one is uh, habits. Uh, number two is sin for Augustine. Uh, sin not only hampers us morally, it can also hamper us intellectually. Um, In the Confessions, for example, Augustine writes that he was not able to savor his intellectual breakthrough for very long because he was soon, quote, torn away by his own weight and fell again with torment to lower things. He was pulled down. He couldn't savor the high because he was pulled down by the weight of his sins. Uh, Intellectual breakthroughs, intellectual judgment are different from your moral character, but they are still connected. Our sins do have a negative impact on our ability to think clearly, dispassionately, and maturely. So that's intellectual self-knowledge. The second kind of self-knowledge for Augustine is moral self-knowledge. In addition to an intellectual conversion, Augustine also speaks of the importance of a moral conversion. Um, What is the point of being wise, Augustine asks himself in the Confessions, if I remain the vile slave of evil desires? Besides a conversion of one's intellect or understanding, there needs to be a conversion of one's behavior or mores. A moral conversion is a conversion of your practices, right? 
And as with intellectual breakthrough, a moral breakthrough can only come from moral self-knowledge. Moral self-knowledge consists of knowing oneself as a sinner, clearly and decisively, without any excuses or evasions. And it is important because it begins the process of repentance and healing, for the first step to any cure is a proper diagnosis. The obstacles to moral self-knowledge are fairly clear. First, we don't want to know ourselves as sinners because the truth is too ugly. We would rather not think of ourselves as, you know, morally depraved. Augustine writes in the Confessions, men love the truth when it enlightens them. They hate the truth when it accuses them. Because they do not wish to be deceived and do wish to deceive, they love truth when it reveals itself and hate it when it reveals them. A, car a cartoon I recently saw illustrates this point nicely. A husband turns to his wife and says, I think I just had an epiphany. How do I make it go away? Aesop tells the story that when Jupiter made man, he gave man two knapsacks, one for his neighbor's faults and one for his own. The man kept the one for his neighbor's faults in front of him and the one for his own on his back. In the Confessions, when Augustine finally recounts, recounts finally seeing his own moral failings for what they were, he uses a similar image of hiding behind himself. Listen to what he says. You, O God, turned me back towards myself, taking me from behind my own back where I had put myself all the time that I preferred not to see myself. And yet you set me there before my own face that I might see how vile I was, how twisted and unclean and spotted and ulcerous. I saw myself and was horrified. It takes a small miracle to see oneself as one truly is, in no small part because the miracle is so resisted. A moral conversion can be prompted in different ways. In Augustine's life, it was a combination of interpreting an everyday event as a sign from heaven, the sound of neighborhood kids singing, take and read, take and read, as well as hearing stories, stories of people just like him who were able to leave their sin behind. After hearing these stories, Augustine writes, but there was no way to flee from myself. If I tried to turn my gaze from myself, there was Ponticianus telling what he was telling. And again, you were setting me face to face with myself, forcing me upon my own sight that I might see my iniquity and loathe it. In that crucial moment, he was able to overcome all the clever dodges, rationalizations, justifications, and excuses, and to see himself as he truly was. And thanks to that, moments later, he was healed. The reluctance to see the truth about ourselves is a particularly difficult obstacle 
because it is also fueled by a desire to be seen in a certain way by the people around us, what Rousseau calls a more prope. In other words, we spend our lives hiding our own dark and disordered hearts from our neighbors, so much so that we start hiding it from ourselves. In explaining the method of the soliloquies, this dialogue, reason tells Augustine the following. Since there is no better way of seeking the truth than by questioning and answering, and since any, hardly anyone can be found who isn't ashamed of being refuted in a disputation, and for that reason, it's almost always the case that the matter that's under discussion, one that's off to a good start, is booed off the stage by the rowdy hullabaloo of stubbornness. And all the while, souls are being ripped apart, mostly out of sight, but sometimes in the open. Because of this, I most calmly have agreeably decided to seek the truth with God's assistance by means of being questioned by my very self and giving answers to myself. All right, there's a lot in that statement, so let's, let's break it down. Number one, reason says the best way to grow in wisdom is through a question and answer method with other people, what Socrates calls dialectic, right? So the best way to grow in wisdom is dialectically. Uh, number two, dialectic works best with others, right? As we see in the Platonic dialogues. Number three, the problem is that when we are with others, we wish to be perceived in a certain way. And that wish is in tension with our desire to learn. For learning requires confessing our ignorance. We would rather be thought a fool and remain silent than open our mouths and remove all doubt. So number four, in the soliloquies at least, Augustine tries to resolve the problem by having a dialectical conversation with himself and his own reason. What's interesting though, is in the dialogue, it doesn't work. Um, and then the fact that he's actually publicizing the dialogue to us and we're reading it, you know, 2000 years later, it's kind of ironic. It's not exactly a private conversation. Um, but again, I draw your attention to this, the, the desire for us to be seen a certain way is actually an impediment to self-knowledge. Uh, most times the desire to be seen overrides the desire to see. Right? We, we'd, rather, we'd rather have a, a good house of mirrors where you look really, really good in, in the rest of the eyes of the world than to actually know what lies beyond the mirrors. Um, and the second obstacle, of course, to moral conversion is the power of sinful habit. As Augustine explains in the Confessions, we can abuse our free will in such a way that we effectively lose it. Because my will was perverse, it changed to lust, and lust yielded to become habit, and habit not resisted became necessity. That is as tidy a summary of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics as one can find. And the funny thing is, Augustine never read the ethics. 
Uh, similarly, Augustine writes that moments before his moral conversion, I shrank from dying unto death and living unto life. The lower condition, which had grown habitual, was more powerful than the better condition which I had not tried. Right, this is, I'm sure, the dilemma that like every alcoholic faces. You know, they, they know that alcoholism isn't the best life choice of all, right? But it's the one with which they are familiar. And they can sort of recognize something better, but it's terrifying to make that leap into the unknown, right? So even though you know your life sucks, you're, you know it, right? And the devil you know is the one that you're most comfortable with. And so you shrink from the better condition which you've not yet tried. Uh, so these are genuine obstacles to moral growth, moral self-knowledge. Religious self-knowledge is the third kind of self-knowledge of which Augustine speaks. Moral conversion begins the life of ethical excellence and makes one fit to have the best kind of friendships. But that said, neither intellectual nor moral conversion satisfies the deepest yearnings of the human mind and heart. Something more is needed, both as a completion and grounding of these conversions and in order to bring the human person to ultimate happiness. Hence the need for religious conversion, which in biblical terms is the replacement of one's heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart of flesh that enables one to love the Lord God with one's whole heart, one's whole soul, and one's whole strength. Religious conversion is a surrender to divine love. It is religious in its modern meaning as ordered toward a formal and communal worship of God, but it is also religious in its ancient meaning. The word religio means binding. And so a religious conversion is a conversion whereby you turn to God and are bound to him. You are in union with God, a tight-knit union. For Augustine, both senses of the word religion are operative in the sacrament of baptism. For Augustine, such a binding in the Christian religion does not involve a restriction, but paradoxically an expansion of one's freedom, as well as a perfection or completion of the other two conversions. For in addition to knowing the good, intellectual conversion, doing the good, moral conversion. With religious conversion, you're finally able to love the good. Uh, and as Aristotle says in the Nicomachean Ethics, that in a sense is the most important. If you just knew the good and did the good, but didn't love it, uh, you're not a good person. Um, without doubt, St. Monica concludes in one of Augustine's dialogues, this is the happy life, the life that is perfect. And we must presume that we who are hurrying to it can be brought to it by a firm faith, a lively hope, and an ardent charity. Religious self-knowledge, then, is the knowledge of oneself as a creature and as a beloved child of God. It makes moral self-knowledge bearable, for religious self-knowledge 
For with religious self-knowledge comes trust in the help of the Lord and hope in forgiveness. Uh, it also completes intellectual self-knowledge, which tops out at the recognition that my knowing is somehow tied into God. If intellectual self-knowledge enables us to know the good and moral self-knowledge enables us to do the good, religious self-knowledge enables us to love the good. Finally, religious self-knowledge is crucial because self-knowledge and knowledge of God go hand in hand. Remember, Augustine's twin obsession is to know God and the soul. And the more he knows one, the better an insight he actually gets into the other. Obstacles standing in the way of religious conversion are, of course, anything that prevents or undermines religious faith. In his writings, Augustine identifies two of these, despair and presumption. It's interesting that these are two opposite vices, but they have the same poisonous effect on faith. Despair, that you will ever find the truth, discourages you from ever embarking on a quest for the truth. And the same thing for presumption. Because if you hold the false opinion that you have already discovered the truth, you won't feel the need to go looking for it. So whether you think you've already found it, and you haven't, or if it can't ever be found, uh, it's going to have the same paralyzing effect on your soul. Um, That is why the virtue of hope is so important, because you're not relying on on any kind of self-confidence with hope, so you're not being presumptuous that you got all the answers. Um, but you're not filled with despair either because you know that God is, is bigger than you and God can help you and he's a good guy and he wants to help you. Um, so hope, can, hope is the antidote uh, to despair and to presumption and can help you move towards religious conversion. Um, I would like to conclude this evening with something that is more of an open question about our world today than an actual conclusion. Um, And it is, I'm curious to know, what is the relationship of these three kinds of self-knowledge in Augustine uh, to how we think of self-knowledge today? So, for example, beginning in the 1960s and 70s, um, a whole new vocabulary arose where we spoke of consciousness raising or raising awareness about certain aspects of our existence, such as our participation in a system or society that is not always just and may indeed be intrinsically oppressive. Um, The most recent iteration of this approach is the woke movement, which has gained tremendous traction in recent years. Um, And my my question is, is, what is the relationship between being woke and being awakened. Augustine would describe these sorts of conversions as moments of awakening. Um, And I don't have an answer. I know that in a sense, woke, to be woke means to wake up and to have a certain insight, right? I will throw one thing out. And again, this is more of a question and I invite your, your discussion. 
it does seem that a lot of woke self-knowledge involves recognizing yourself either as a victim or an oppressor. That there is, I, this perhaps is the only binary that woke likes, is the, uh, is the, the strict divide between victim and oppressor. And if you are an oppressor and you, and you realize this, then the next best thing is to become someone who radically empathizes and supports the cause of the victim. Um, which I'm not saying, first of all, let me be perfectly clear, I'm not saying there aren't victims and oppressors in this world in a, on an individual or a systemic level. Um, there is a critique to be made to be sure. But my question is, if that is the, the alpha and omega of your self-knowledge, you know, I'm victor or oppressor, victim or oppressor. Um, does that qualify as self-knowledge? So I will, I will end on that note and invite your questions and discussion. I was thinking of like this idea of the mirror image from early psychology that like you actually are who you are because of how other people think about you. So like, yeah. like that's sort of like the psychological like insight of our era is that no, there is no self. I am whatever everyone else thinks I am. So that's why. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think Augustine would be largely sympathetic with that view. He's certainly aware of the influence of other people on his life. But I think he would stop short of saying, therefore, there's no center, right? Um, I am a center. I have a center. And it's been deeply affected by the marinade that it's been in. But there is still a center to be marinated in. Um, and the question is, once I realize this, maybe I need to find a different marinade. Yeah. I guess I have a question. Yeah. Uh, talking about like this division between like the mind and the brain that um, Augustine had. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned how there's sort of this division between the knowledge of the senses and sort of this like intelligible knowledge. Yeah. And so I was wondering if like this position sort of lends itself towards a perspective of the brain being a capture of the senses on a physical sense. The brain being um, what? The brain being more aligned with the sense, the realm of the senses, yeah. the physical realm. And yeah. if so, um, would that lend itself to a reading of like the mind being spiritual, which then sort of justifies a need for spiritual guidance from God in these matters? Yes. So he would definitely see the see the brain as a sensible reality, a material organ, and not not spirit. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I mean he, he didn't have neuroscience, right? So uh, um, we would have to sort of transpose things into a modern idiom. Um, I think Augustine would say that the activities of the mind, which is spirit, involve the brain but are not reducible to the brain. Right? In a weird way, when the brain is doing the brain's thing, it, it's thinking is not just the sum of all the parts of, of neural activity. That, that somehow thinking actually involves something that transcends the, the neurons that are in space, time, and matter. Yeah. Yeah. Question, I, I wanted to follow on this a little because 
I was curious about the status of the special, this first kind of self-knowledge, intellectual yeah. self-knowledge. I guess the way I want to put my question is this. Um, I mean, just broadly, I want to understand the relationship of that kind of knowledge to the other two, but I, I would put it another way also, which is that it seems, in a way, more likely to me that you, that religious and moral self-knowledge would need to go together, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, but intellectual mm -hmm. self-knowledge, especially if it means clarifying what belongs to the senses and what belongs to the mind alone, at least might be less necessary. Now, maybe that's wrong, right? Maybe if you think, maybe if you're always thinking of God in terms of like images, that's not real mm -hmm. religion somehow. But I, I guess I just want to ask, how do these fit together? Is there a is there a hierarchy of them? Is mm -hmm. are, and and most specifically, is intellectual self knowledge necessary for the other two kinds of self knowledge, especially religious self knowledge? Yeah, that's a great question. So Augustine in the Confessions narrates them in the order in which they happen to him, right? So, but but that's not an ontological ordering. And, and in fact, it may happen sooner, like some, some youngster brought up with good habits who didn't, leave the, didn't live the hellion life that Augustine did. Um, maybe he has the moral conversion first or the religious conversion first. And then it's only later in life when he's attained a certain intellectual maturity that he can have an intellectual conversion. Um, and Augustine does believe that you can have a sincere religious conversion without an intellectual conversion, but he does consider it monke. He refers to fellow Christians who do not properly understand the difference between the sensible and the intelligible as little ones, parvily. Um, and he doesn't mean that necessarily condescendingly, but he's, he, calls, he basically compares them to fledglings. And he says, uh, the best thing for them to do is stay in the nest, because we all know what happens when fledglings try to fly before they're ready, right? They, they end up all messed up on the sidewalk. So uh, he, he recommends that the little ones who have not had this intellectual conversion stay close to the authority of Mother Church. Um, but those who have had the intellectual conversion can delve more deeply into the mysteries of God. Does that mean departing from the authority of Mother Church? No, it, it doesn't. Um, just like you know, when you when you when you become a fledg when you're fledging and then you learn to fly, it doesn't mean you become anti-nest, right? It just means that you can do more. Um, so, so you're right. This is not some kind of departure from uh, the religion. If anything, it's the ability to explore more deeply into the religion. Yeah. What he's basically saying is those with intellectual conversion are able to participate more deeply in theology. Whereas those who haven't had that, just think of like, you know, the, the stereotypical, you know, peasant grandma in some rural village. She hasn't had the benefit of this kind of thing. She should probably stay out of debates of academic theology. And it doesn't mean she's a bad person or she's not going to heaven before anybody else, but she should stay out of those debates. Yeah. Could you flesh out a little bit more how you can love something you don't know? 
that seems to be the implication of like you can have this religious conversion without there being intellectual conversion. But if you're the level of good, you have to know something about it. Yes. Um, you know, the best place where Augustine explores that question is with his mother, Monica. So I've just given you, in a sense, a very bifurcated uh, picture, right? The, the Christians who have intellectual conversion, and, and they're sort of the grown-ups in the room. And then the Christians who haven't had intellectual conversions, who are kind of, in a sense, intellectually childish. Um, so that is kind of the way he draws the map. But the monkey wrench he deliberately throws in is his mother, Monica, who does not have the benefit of a liberal arts education. It's not clear she's had an intellectual conversion. But her faith is so strong that when issues come up, she can just smell bad thinking. Um, so to, to come back to your question, she does know God. Um, she may not have a clear intellectual concept of God, um, but she knows enough of God to have this incredibly strong love of him, um, which ultimately sways Augustine himself. So the figure of Monica is just fascinating in the writings of Augustine. And I think, again, she's there deliberately. She, she very deliberately undermines the nice map that he himself has drawn. Um, she's the key. Yeah, she wants to follow up. She's being too polite, though. <laughs> No, like, I, I, I really do sympathize with the, like, look at this person who, like, clearly loves God a lot. Like, I, yeah. I believe it. I just still not convinced as to the why. Like, what's the principle? Like, why, why can we have love that's incommensurate with the knowledge that we have? Like, is it because of God being infinite? Like, and like, like what, what's, what's the hinge piece there? Yeah. All I can say in response to that question is that Augustine does recognize that knowledge and love are interrelated, right? As you said, you can't love what you don't know. Um, you all, all, and then also, the more you know about someone you love, the more you love them, right? Especially when, when ev everything there is to know is good, right? Like it's different with obviously human relationships. You, when you learn something bad about somebody, like, eh, and then you're like turned off or something. But with God, it's all good, right? So the more you know God. So he knows the two are related. Um, and he would say that what, in, in some respects, I think what he's trying to say with Monica is that her love is so strong that it, in, a, in a sense, it kind of opens up vistas of knowledge, um, which, otherwise would only have been attainable through a classical liberal arts education. Yeah. There was some, I can't remember what it was. There was a picture saying that said that love itself is a form of knowledge. Oh. But or at least it, it opens up, yeah. I, I think he would distinguish love and knowledge, but he would say love de definitely can open up knowledge. There's a great medieval adage, uh, ubi amor ibi oculos, where there is love, there are eyes. That uh, when you really are in love, it, and it's true love, it's good love, it, it doesn't blind you, as a lot of our, you know, modern romantic songs say, but rather it opens your eyes. You put, um, uh, the best, you said the best way to grow in wisdom is through dialectic with others and requires revealing our ignorance. You were talking about that within the category of moral self-knowledge. 
Yes. Um, which I would have thought you would you would have put it within the category of intellectual self knowledge. Yeah. But maybe I miss I know how to understanding of the different distinction well enough. Uh, is dialectic how is if if moral self knowledge has to do with action and doing good, yeah. Why are we sitting around talking about it? How does that actually it seems like that would pertain more to the intellectual yeah. self-knowledge. Well, and you're right. Well, dialectic can be used for any kind of conversation, right? Yeah. It can be used for intellectual matters or for moral matters, even moral self-knowledge. You know, when you speak to a therapist or a priest, you, in a sense, it's a moral dialectic that, that's aimed towards you discovering more self-knowledge. Um, but take that example, for instance. Um, at a certain point, if your priest or psychologist is prodding you and you're kind of ashamed of the answer because you just don't want him to know, you know, what a pervert you are <laughs> or whatever, right? You're going to hesitate and you, maybe you'll try to find some way of, you know, using euphemistic language or, or something, you know what I mean? So, you know, Mark Twain has the, the perfect definition of man. He's not the rational animal. He's the pink cheeked animal. He's the animal who blushes. Why is he the animal who blushes? He's the only animal who experiences shame. And our fear of being ashamed in front of other people is stronger than our sense of guilt. You know, shame and guilt are two very different phenomena. Um, the average human being does not understand the concept of guilt until they're about three years old. But babies show signs of recognizing shame at 18 months. Even at 18 months, we're aware of how other people are perceiving us. And we, we want to position ourselves in such a way that we, we come off looking our best at 18 months. <laughs> right? So, uh, so, so that awareness of how other people perceive us, um, Will, will keep us from brutal self-knowledge. We're hiding it from others and, and there's a way in which we even start to hide it from ourselves. So then what's the, what's the key distinction, would you say, winding it down between moral self-knowledge and intellectual self-knowledge? I think I, I must have lost my way there. Well, the object is different, right? With intellectual self-knowledge, your goal is to simply understand the intelligibility of an intelligible reality. Yeah. Your soul as mind or spirit rather than body. Um, but moral self-knowledge aims at a perfect understanding of your actions and their motives. Which can be arrived at through different, different modes. Yeah. And that's what you're saying about like yeah. dialectic is one way, maybe practicing virtue is yeah. another way. There's yeah. different ways of getting to that knowledge, yeah. but that's the end of the yeah. And another way that, uh, you know, in homage to uh, the, the Thomas Jefferson Center, um, story, right? One of the reasons why narratives are so important is that we can, we sometimes see ourselves in the characters. And that gives us, that can give us a window into self-knowledge. Bad stories can lead us away from self-knowledge as the early books of the confession make very clear. But good stories can bring us greater self-knowledge as the later books of the confessions make clear. 
I heard these stories, Augustine says, and I was on fire to imitate them. So they can have a good effect as well. Yes? So are there any other like, historical figures that Augustine treats with like a kind of reverence that show like um, intellectual and moral self-knowledge in the maximal way? And the way like Dante treats Virgil? Yeah. That's a good question. He admires a lot of different people and is indebted to a lot of different people. But I don't know if there's one who kinds of, kind of sums it all up for him. Um, he definitely is indebted to Ambrose for helping with uh, this intellectual conversion. He deeply admires Cicero's moral philosophy. And then I think for Monica, the religious conversion, uh, I, those three figures come to mind for each of the, the kinds of self-knowledge. Um, I, I don't know if there's anyone who sort of sums it all up. Maybe Marius Victorinus, he, he praises him in, in book eight of the Confessions. Is that, he, was a, he was a Christian Platonist who converted um, and uh, was wise and humble. Um, so maybe Marius Victorinus. But as far as like non-Christian figures, the only person would be uh, Cicero. I think Cicero, um, he deeply admired and was grateful to the Platonists that helped him with his intellectual conversion. The huge controversy is we don't know who they were. He deliberately, I mean, he names names all over the place. We know he read Virgil. Interestingly enough, we know he read Aristotle. What's, what's ironic about Augustine is that he's always tagged as the Platonist. But we actually don't know if you ever read a single line of Plato. But we do know he read a book of Aristotle, which is <laughs> kind of ironic, you know. He never names the Platonist whom he read. It was probably Neoplatonist. It was most likely Plotinus and Porphyry. Which book of Aristotle do we know he read? Uh, he tells us at the age of... 18 or 19, he read the categories. <laughs> yeah. It's a good place to start. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, he did love Virgil. I mean, he, he, he kind of disses Virgil in book one of the Confessions. But when you actually, again, he's such a funny guy. When you read it closely, he's actually more critical of his response to Virgil than Virgil. Um, he accuses himself of a kind of escapism using Virgil as kind of an escapist literature. But that's not what Virgil meant the Aeneid to be for. And then later, he, he uses Virgil's Aeneid in a much more constructive way. And he speaks respectfully of Virgil in the city of God. Um, so there were a number of non-Christian authors that he appreciated. Does that help? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I know you asked a question about modern self-knowledge, and I had a kind of parallel question with that. So I thought of um, the relatively modern science of psychology and the rise of therapy in our modern age, and so I was wondering what connections or correlations you see with that and mm -hmm. Augustine's self-knowledge. Yeah. I, um, I think Augustine would acknowledge the validity of the field of psychology. Um, I guess the, the concern would be 
any sort of reductionistic uh, practice of psychology. So for example, um, I could see Augustine protesting Freud. Now, no one uses Freud anymore, so I think we're on safe grounds, um, except English departments, oddly enough. But psychologists have long disavowed Freud. Um, but, you know, Freud, Freud tried to reduce all desire to some form of sexual libido. Um, and I, I think Augustine would say, and then the therapy sort of consists of that, right? So whatever frustration you have has to do with some kind of frustrated sexual libido. Um, I, th I think Augustine would actually see things in the, in the opposite way. Um, that is to say, it is not the case that all our desires are reducible to sex. On the contrary, it is the case that all our desires, in a sense, are a groaning for the divine, um, even our disordered desires. There's a great line from a 20th century novelist, uh, the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Now, he may be looking for it in a very disordered way, um, but even our sinful actions and our sinful desires are a, a groping for the divine, a groping for completion. Whereas I think Freud would say the opposite, right? The man who knocks on the door of of a church is looking for a brothel, you know, <laughs> that he reduces, you know, our religious, our higher aspirations to the lower. So, so in, in other words, yes to psychology, but no to bad psychology, reductionistic psychology. Does that help? I think so. I guess I'm still wondering, um, I'm not sure what concepts I have in my head, but I'm thinking of like the very, the very high focus on like examining the childhood and like past, uh, past events in one's life, and that is an avenue for self knowledge, right? And I guess seeing how that relates to what Augustine writes about. Yeah. yeah. Again, I think, I think he certainly would be sympathetic to the. That method you mentioned, like looking into your childhood, and because um, what's interesting is that we see that very method in the confessions. What's fascinating about the confessions is that it is the world's first autobiography. There were some autobiographical elements of other works or letters, but as a genre, the confessions is the first. And. One way to think of the confessions is that it is a therapy of memory and desire that he engages in before God and neighbor, right? So he's, he's addressing God, but in a kind of a therapeutic way, help me understand myself. And I'll let the reader over here so that he may, he may profit from the therapeutic exercises that I'm participating in right now. Um, and, and then he combs his memory and talks about his childhood and he's critical on himself, but he's also critical of his parents, right? Um, which, you know, we see a lot of in modern psychology, not without merit, of course, right? But uh, uh, looking back at, you know, the way mom and dad influenced you for better or for worse. 
Um, so yeah, I think it, it, it's fascinating in many ways the way in which he anticipates modern psychology. One of my professors, when I was an undergraduate, was, was her degree was in psychology and she loved the confessions. Uh, she just thought it was so ahead of its time. Uh, I didn't want to keep you too much longer, but I have one question from sure. Monica from before that I wanted to ask. Um, <laughs> just uh, with Monica, right? Can you say just a little more about what she knows? Like, like you're using this language like her love somehow contains knowledge or is knowledge. Is it possible to articulate the content of that? And then can you do that? She's definitely strongest with, uh, with issues of morality. I'm just thinking of her, her, so she appears in two places. She appears in these four early dialogues um, by St. Augustine, and then she appears in the Confessions. Um, she she sometimes knows the answer and she sometimes doesn't. Um, so, like I said, she, she's strongest on things like the moral virtues. She's not always strong on the metaphysics. Yeah. However, she recognizes there's this crucial scene in the Devi Atavita on the happy life where she, with all the other people there, she's the one who correctly answers the question, what is the food of the soul? And without hesitation, Monica says, the knowledge of truth. The truth feeds the soul like food feeds the body. It is, it is the nourishment of the soul. And, um, and Augustine like, you know, praises her to the, to the hilt. Um, he says of Monica, you, you have stormed the stronghold of philosophy without having to go through any of the you know, usual steps. Uh, you parachuted in, and it's, it's because of her strong faith that she has captured many of the goals of the philosopher. Um, one of the things that Augustine greatly admires her for is that she has absolutely overcome her fear of death which, you know, Socrates lists as one of the prerequisites of a philosopher. Not in the crazy Achilles way, I'm just a badass and I don't care, but just this kind of, yeah, I accept it. Um, so there are many ways she has this kind of philosophical mind, but the, but the one thing that's uncertain is has she had that intellectual conversion. Hey, let's give Professor Foley another round of applause. Thank you.